it is. Thanks, Mary Ellen. Appreciate it. Well, good morning. How are you doing? Good? You're awake? As Chris Turner always says, it's always a good day when you have Vineyard Church of Hopkinton, right? Uh, Chris is the really outgoing guy over there. If you haven't met him, you will pretty soon. <laughs> Uh, so when I was 19 or 20, I went to a music festival because that's one of the things you do when you're 19 or 20 that you don't do when you reach the mature age of 35. And for this entire music festival, we camped out in the middle of a dry desert-like field with no tree coverage. We all used the same porta pots. It was quite an experience. Uh, pretty amazing smells and uh, other things going on at this music festival. Uh, so I went with some friends. We got there. We set up in the middle of this tent, or in the middle of the field. We set up our tents. And as we were setting up, getting everything laid out, one of my friends took out a really tiny little shovel. It's actually kind of cute. He probably wouldn't have liked that term, but it was a cute little shovel, and he started digging a ditch around our tent. Now, I am not a camper, if you can tell by what I've just said. I do not like camping or find it fun in any way, shape, or form to be sit sleeping outside on the hard ground, like not sleeping, listening to weird noises outside of your tents. Like, no thank you, I'm out. Uh, so he's digging this ditch around our tent, and so finally, I'm like, what in the heck are you doing? Like, this is weird. Why are you digging a ditch? And he's like, well, you know, you know, we, we dig a ditch so that our tent doesn't flood. And I said, we have a tarp over top of the tent so that our tent doesn't flood. Did you miss that? I don't know. Rain comes down, not usually up. Are we planted on a geyser or something? And he's like, no, it's so that it doesn't kind of flow underneath and soak everything from underneath. So I just kept making fun of him. Because that's what you do when you're 19 and you don't understand what's going on. I kept making fun of him until finally we heard music starting and I was like, let's go. Like, this is dumb. And so we left. <laughs> and he dug a ditch around one of our two tents. Now, this was in the days before smartphones allowed us to access weather reports at a moment's notice. This was back when you had to like... Stick your finger in the air and, and hope you got it right. I don't know. Uh, I had no idea what the weather was going to be like the rest of the four days that we were there. But that night, as we were sleeping, it started to rain. And it rained for the next 24 hours. And beautifully, our tent was dry. No water at all. The tarp worked. The ditch actually worked. It kept all the water away from underneath of our tent. My pillow was dry. My clothes were dry. My sleeping bag was dry. I was very, very happy. And then halfway through the day, the girls opened their tent. And let's just say Hurricane Katrina brought back some, some images from this encounter. Everything was floating. It was everywhere. Their pillows were soaked, their sleeping bags, their clothes, everything was soaked. They had a tarp over top, but they didn't have a ditch dug around the tent, and it didn't hold up so well. All the water came underneath and soaked everything from inside out. They were not very happy with me for making fun of him. 
Uh, we're in the middle of a series from the book of Exodus called A Story of Redemption. And Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It's, it's about the Israelites leaving Egypt, leaving slavery, traveling across a really big desert, or at least a desert that seemed really big to them because it took them 40 years to make it, and finally reaching the other side, the land that God was pointing them to. And let me tell you, the Israelites needed some help. They were struggling. By halfway through the book of Exodus, they have been out of Egypt How long do you think? You know, 20 years? No, one year. In one year's time, they've already reached the point where they are saying, I wish that we were still slaves. That's pretty bad, right? You know it's bad when you want to go back to 400 years of slavery because of what's happened in one year. They were that frustrated, that upset within that short amount of time. And it's not because life was that hard. It's because they didn't know what they were doing. They were like me with camping. They didn't realize that their, their tent didn't have to be flooded. Their pillow didn't have to be wet. Their clothes didn't have to be wet. But nobody had ever taught them that all you needed to do was just dig a ditch around the tent. They had been, never been given any rules for how to live life well because they had just come out of 400 years of slavery. They didn't understand how to set up things well for their life. They needed someone to show them what to do. And so God gave them some helpful hints and he called them the Ten Commandments. Now you might be sitting there and saying, like, if my life is crappy, I really don't want a rule book thrown at me. Like, that's not the right answer for the time. But that's because we kind of have often taken the Ten Commandments out of context. So before we go any further with it, I want us to to remember a few things about the Ten Commandments that we often forget. Here's the first thing. They're to be read within the broader story of Exodus. Everything in the Bible is part of a bigger story. It's not to be just yanked out, placed on its own, and then read, although that's what we often do with the Ten Commandments, right? You most often see them in like some like flowery designed picture in somebody's house or in a church or on a courthouse wall, and all it seems to be is just a moral code of do's and don'ts and how-tos and how's-nots that you want to follow along with. That's what the Ten Commandments usually seem like, but they're within a bigger story, which leads to the second part, that they are intensely personal. They are written to a specific group of people in a specific place in a specific time, not to some vague, ambiguous group of people. They're written to the Israelites, a group of people who have no idea how to set up life for themselves, who need a lot of help, and they're given to those people in a time when they're really struggling a lot, which leads to the third thing, that the ten, the ten Commandments were given to create order. They are the foundational law in their entire law book. The central part of the Israelites' laws and rules for how to live life are the Ten Commandments. Everything else was built off of that. They're a linchpin of sorts. Now, if you don't remember what a linchpin is, here's a definition. It's defined as something that holds the various elements of a complicated structure together, a person or a thing vital to an enterprise or organization. Quite literally, if you're thinking wild, wild west, that's when we usually see linchpins, big old wagon wheels, 
axle, really small hole in the middle of the axle that holds everything together. The linchpin's the thing that goes in and holds the wheel in place. That's what it is, quite literally. You see the picture there. Without a linchpin, you know what happens when the horse, donkey, cattle, whatever else would drive the, the wagon, leads the wagon? You know what happens? It goes about five yards, and then everything starts unraveling, and it falls over very, very quickly, and it's painful, because then you got to pick up the whole wagon, stick it back on there, and go another five yards, and then it falls apart, and so on, and it keeps going like that. If the linchpin is in properly, it's able to go straight, to go where you want it to go, to move a lot faster, and you don't even have to keep fixing it all the time. That's what the linchpin does. And the Ten Commandments are the linchpin of the Israelite community. They're what holds all the elements of this really complex structure, this people group together. They're vital. And as this people group grew and grew and grew, it goes from just being the foundation point of their laws to actually being a sort of rule of life for how to live for this group of people. And I think that that's how it is supposed to be read for us today, mainly because Jesus says that. Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is telling us that he didn't come to just wash everything away, to delete everything that had ever been written before he was alive. He came as a giant flashlight for everything that had been written before him. He came to expound upon it, to highlight the parts that people were getting wrong, to show them what they misunderstood, what they weren't really understanding about how God had tried to set things up, to shine a huge flashlight on it and reveal his plan to the earth. That's what he came to do, he says here. And Jesus was clearly thinking about the Ten Commandments and other rules like that when he talked about this, because Matthew 12, 28, or Mark 12, 28 says this. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate, and he realized that Jesus had answered well, so he said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other command is greater than these. Love God, love others. If you've been in church for any stretch of time, you've heard this. This is a pretty commonly talked about thing. But that's what it all comes down to, these two simple commandments. Everything else boils down to those. This morning we're going to look at the ten but I want us to look at the 10 through the lens of the two. We have to keep those two as the most central things because in math, according to Jesus, 10 equals two. There you go. Everybody, 10 equals two. You got it. Math, according to Jesus for us. All the commandments come down to these, not because the others are not important, but because they all are based in these two. That's what Jesus tells us. 
love God and love others. 10 equals 2. Let's pray, and then we'll read from Exodus 20. Jesus, I just thank you for what you are doing in our hearts this morning, what you have planned for us. And I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you will come and speak to us. Uh, Sometimes talking about subjects like this can bring up guilt or shame over how we're not living versus how we feel like we should be living. But I pray that that won't be the case today, Jesus. Uh, I pray that instead that we'll just have a clearer understanding of who you are and uh, why you've given us tools to be able to live in ways that look like how you lived. So I pray for that. Help us to live lives that look like your life, Jesus. Help us to reflect you to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bible, open up to that. If you don't have a Bible, you can read from the screens or open it up on your phone. I won't think you're texting if you're doing that. Don't worry. Uh, Let's read this. Verse 1, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. You must not misuse the the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Love God with everything. No other gods, no idols, and watch what you say about God because all of this is intensely important to God. And all three of these frame the first of the two. Love God. That's what all these are talking about. If you're going to follow him, you can't worship other gods. God doesn't, it's interesting. Like in our culture, we usually just say that there aren't any like, you know, things or that if they are then you're like a conspiracy theorist who who believes in aliens and thinks that star trek was actually a historical drama that is what space force according you know the new space force logo is actually the star trek logo and it's actually all real but god doesn't say that there aren't other gods he just says don't worship them he says, don't, don't ignore them necessarily. Don't pretend like they're not there. Just stop worshiping them. Don't pretend that they're not destructive and distracting. Just don't worship them. That's what God says here. You need to make sure that they're not your focus. And I think it's really important that God place these first. I think he did it on purpose. He does most of the things on purpose. And here's why he placed these first. And this one might throw you, so stick with me a little bit. I think this is first because if you don't do number one, you don't need to worry about the other nine. If you don't do number one, don't worry about the other nine. If you don't love God, what purpose is there to doing the other nine? Where's the deep value in the other things? You know, we live in a pretty moralistic society 
And that's still true regardless of whatever your Facebook feed says today. We do live in a fairly moralistic society. That is a part of our culture. And most of our laws, at least the good ones, are based around the ten. They're based around the Ten Commandments. And so we see deep intrinsic value in being good moral people in our culture. So I'm not going to say that that's wrong, but again, context is important for reading all of this. And I think God would say that if you're not doing the other nine, if you're not doing number one, then what, what purpose is there to the other nine on the big scale? So you don't say a lie. You feel momentarily good about yourself. Great, that's good. There's value in the second for that. But long term, what value is there in that if you don't love Jesus? That's what I'm saying here. Let me give you a story and then hopefully it'll bring it together for you a little bit. If you're still wondering what the heck I'm trying to get at here. So I went to a Christian school in elementary school. It was a very conservative Christian school in a small town in Ohio. And I am saying those things on purpose. Uh, you will see why in a second. And part of the, the rules of this school was that your parents signed a waiver saying that the school could discipline you in certain ways. And I was not always a perfect child. I know, right? It's sad. But I wasn't always a perfect child. And in one of my moments of imperfection, I got sent to the principal's office. I truly don't know why I got sent to the principal's office. I don't remember. I probably repressed it and just moved on. But I got sent to the principal's office. And when I was in there, we're sitting, conversing, talking about whatever it was that I did. And the principal says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You see, you see that board above my door. I am going to take that down, and you are going to get paddled twice. Like I said, conservative Christian school, small town Ohio in the 90s. It's what it was. My parents signed off on it. And so he takes this thing down and he's holding it in his hands. And he says, okay, but first we're going to pray. And you know what I did? I didn't say it. I was smart enough for that. Praise Jesus for that. I have that much wisdom to not say it out loud. But in my head, all I'm thinking is, what the heck does Jesus have to do with that board and this butt? Nothing at all. Nothing. The three are not connected in any way, shape, or form. I do not understand what you're doing. So we prayed, and I kept my mouth shut. Then he whooped me twice, and then he sent me on my merry way. And I still live to tell the tale, so I'm fine. Uh, my principal, I think, was a really good guy. He was. Uh, he, he loved Jesus, and I think he was trying to do the right thing. But he did it all wrong. And here's where I'm going with if you don't do the first one, the other just, they're, they're not quite enough. This is what we do. We create systems. We build entire worlds based around morality and ethics and ways of living. And then at the last minute, as if we forgot it, we try and grab Jesus and jam him into the middle of it. And it doesn't work at all. Jesus is not your special sauce. He's not your extra ingredient. Jesus has to be the thing that you're building everything around. 
He has to be the thing that you're starting with, not the thing that you're adding in later on. That doesn't work. That's trying to jam him into a political ideal or a life system that is not Jesus-centric. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot do that. It doesn't work at all. Jesus has to be the thing that you're building everything else around. Otherwise, it's not Jesus. It's you with a little bit of something kind of scattered in afterwards. Tim Keller said that when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law for us and that now we who believe in him are secure in God's love, then we naturally want to delight, resemble, and know the one who has done this. It shows how God's law was not a matter only of ritual purity, but was to transform every corner of one's practical life. Be holy, for I am holy. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you want to know who I am, what I hate and love, if you want to know my heart and become like me, obey my law. We do the rest out of the first. We love God, and then we love others. It's got to flow in that direction. Loving Jesus, living a life focused on Jesus will lead to the rest. Back to Exodus chapter 20. If you're still there, verse 8. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. Sabbath is the transition from loving God to loving others, and I think God did it on purpose in that order because I think the Sabbath helps us a lot to love others, but we don't do it very much. So let's talk about Sabbath real fast. Sabbath in the Hebrew means this. It means two things. It means to stop and it means to delight. I like that. We all need to stop and to delight more, right? Uh, I, I really doubt that you stop and delight quite enough. None of us do in our culture. That's just not how we live life very well. Stop and delight. And it's based simply on what God does at the very beginning when he created everything. It's seven days. Six days, he creates. He works. He does his thing. Seventh day, what does he do? He stops and he delights. That's exactly what he does. He looks and says that it's good. And then he just rests. That's what he does on the seventh day. Stop your crazy busyness. Stop your hustling and delight in the world. Delight in your life. Delight in the people around you and delight in Jesus. That's what the Sabbath is about. Now, hopefully we all have at least one day off uh, in, in your week, maybe two. Maybe if you're like one of those like uh, business book like geniuses, you figured out how to do everything in four days and then you just like are really chill. Uh, but for most of us, it's about one day and that's usually our shopping day, right? And it's our project day and it's our yard work day and our housework day and it's our day to run around and do all the stuff for the kids that we didn't get done on the other six days because we were too busy. And you get the point. And then maybe at the end of the day, we have one or two hours where we really take time for ourselves. And we're able to chill for one hour in the week. One hour in the week. That's not a Sabbath, guys. Not at all. Remember, stop and delight. 
So I figured if I was going to talk about this today, then I had to do it, right? Uh, otherwise, you guys would be like, just get off the stage. So yesterday, I did it. I'm playing single dad all weekend because my wife's with the youth group at a retreat. So I was very intentional this week. I got everything together so that we could do this. And the girls at the end of the day were like, this was a really chill day. It's like, good, it worked. Uh, so here's what we did. We, uh, we did some delighting in Jesus through coloring because I have girls and that's what you do. So I printed out a bunch of coloring sheets that were all Psalm 23 and we went through it and we talked about it and we had intentional conversations about Jesus and about their lives and we just sat around and took a really long time to do coloring projects which is not usually my cup of tea but I'm a dad, uh, a girl dad and that's kind of what you do. And then we played several games of Clue Jr. and then we made cookies and then uh, we had pizza for dinner and then we took the dog for a walk and then we watched a movie because that's what they love to do and I read my book and it was Aladdin so I did watch it too because child of the 90s you know I like it um, and then that was it it was super relaxing like they said it was very chill and it was intentional you can do something like this too. It just takes intentionality. Read a psalm or a story about Jesus. Pray, delight in Jesus in each other. Drink your favorite beverages, eat your favorite foods, do your favorite things, whatever it is, and invite others to do it with you. But take time to do this. Not where you're just on your phone or your iPad or your laptop or playing video games, but where you're actually engaging with other people and with Jesus. It's intentional, but it will change things. Stop and delight, and don't be surprised if it affects everything else. Walter Brueggemann said that people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Here's where the push comes to shove a little bit. It's a commandment. So I am going to push it. God says to do it. We need to. It's a linchpin. And honestly, I think it's a reason that most of our lives keep falling over. Most of our lives, the wheel keeps spinning off, and we're not quite sure why it is. Here's what part of it probably is. You're not stopping and delighting. You're not taking space. You're just keeping going with your busyness, with uh, the, the things in your life, and you're not creating that space. I realize it's hard. But it's a commandment from God to us for how to live our lives well. If you want to live your life well, I would recommend learning how to do it. It's a linchpin for us. Okay, love others section. Why love others? I kind of want there to be a love myself section in the Ten Commandments, uh, but there's not. So I guess that says something. Um, instead, there's a lose yourself section, which is shot back to the Oscars last week with Eminem. Nobody? Okay, fine. Uh, John Stott said, if we lose ourselves in loving, we will find ourselves. Only if we die to our own self-centeredness will we begin to live again. And Wendell Berry, the great novelist and poet, once wrote, love is never abstract. It does not adhere to the universe or the planet or the nation, but to singular sparrows of the street, the lilies of the field, and the least of these, my brothers. Loving others isn't about the abstract group of people that you create in your head when you're thinking about it, and you're like, 
yeah, I could do this really good. Really good. It's about the people who are actually in your life. It's about your family. It's about your friends. It's about your coworkers. It's about the people who annoy you, who frustrate you, who are rude to you, who treat you poorly as much as it's about the people who you want to be around, who you love, who you uh, enjoy spending your day off with, who treat you really, really well. It's about all people. And like Stott says, it does require a sort of death to yourself in order to do it well. Let's look back at Exodus 20. Verse 12, honor your father and mother, then you will live a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, most of these we get because, again, we live in a fairly moralistic culture and we understand these things, right? Honoring our parents, we get it even if we don't like it. Uh, murdering, hopefully every single one of you gets. Um, if you don't, don't talk to me because um, I'm not sure I want to deal with that one. Uh, committing adultery, we understand. Uh, stealing, we understand. Testifying falsely against your neighbor is about like lying in court and bringing up charges, which actually in a culture that's as obsessed with suing maybe we should understand that a little bit better coveting i think we kind of usually just push that one off the side and like our voice trails off we're like do not covet and then we just kind of ignore it for the most part and here's why because i think coveting is really about contentment i heard it said recently that in america we get our meaning not from who we are or what we believe, or even what God that we worship, we get our value from, wait for it, what we consume. And I think that that's kind of true. We get our value from what we consume. Whatever form that is, if your Instagram feed's filled with food, you probably get some value from, from affirmation from others and from food. Uh, if you're really focused on what clothes that you're wearing, you might get some value from clothes. There's lots of different things, but we get our value from what we consume. And that's not saying that what we're consuming is necessarily bad, although it could be, but I'm not here to say that one necessarily. But the problem is this, as John Mark Comer says, that we put no limit on stuff due to our insatiable human desire for more, and we think that we need all sorts of things to be happy, when in actuality we need very few. We don't limit ourselves at all. When was the last time you looked through your bank account or through the entertainment section of your bank account to see what it is that you're buying? We don't value ourselves very well, or we don't limit ourselves very well, and we keep buying because we think that it's going to make us happy. That's kind of the definition of coveting and commitment, contentment. So here's something to make you think. Research shows this. The average American sees roughly 4,000 advertisements a day. Mouse dropping open, 4,000. That's for every waking minute. And here's how. Because everything that you look at 
was created to sell you something. Your phone is not a neutral party. It was created to sell you a ton of things. TV is created to sell you a lot of things. Uh, uh, Facebook, social media, it's all based around selling you stuff. It's not just so you see your friends. That's not where they make their money. That's not where Zuckerberg gets his money. The internet is based around selling you something. The old school ways, billboards, newspapers, radios, all based around selling you something. You walk down the street and you see ads up in front of buildings. Like it's everywhere. Everything in our culture is based around selling us something. And do you know what it's selling you most of the time? It's selling you that you need this in order to actually be happy. That's what it's usually selling you. And everybody else is happy because they have this. This new Instapot, it could change your life. $2.99 right here. You won't ever have to cook ever again for longer than five minutes right here. Everything all in one, bright, shiny. It will do it for you, everything. Like that's what everything in our culture is. Every single thing. And like the way they do it is so innocent seeming. You just see people like sitting around relaxed and you're like, I want to be relaxed like that. All I need to buy is a new pair of pants. Like, what? How does pants make you relax? Like, come on. It's ridiculous. But everything around us is telling us that we need something more. Everything. But here's the good news. You can live a life that is not driven by this madness. The bad news is it's going to take some intentionality and a little bit of Jesus. But listen to this. Philippians 4, 11. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Context again. Did you realize that Really what Paul was talking about in that verse, that often quoted verse that you see on greeting cards all over the place and, and you know, pictures po- posted in people's house, that it was actually about contentment. Did you realize that? I don't think most of us did. We thought it was about like moving mountains, about being in impossible situations and being able to make it. Well, here's your impossible situation. Try and be content without the strength of Jesus. There it is. There's the content for that oft-quoted verse. You probably cannot actually do it without Jesus because you're just going to want what everybody else has. You're going to keep wanting more. Paul says that he learned how to be content because Jesus gave him strength. He's not driven by envy or jealousy anymore. It took Jesus And that's the same thing for all of the commandments. They all require Jesus to be able to do them in the way that they were intended when it was first given by God. We need help digging ditches around our tents because even the most most experienced camper among us is getting wet pillows every once in a while because it's hard. We need the strength of Jesus to be able to live life well in a way that reflects Jesus in all areas. We need a linchpin so that our wheels stop falling off and wrecking everything. 
We need something to hold it in place. And the Ten Commandments were given for that reason to the Israelites, and like Jesus said, also to you and Ty. But don't forget, ten equals two. Stuck in your head now. Ten equals two. There you go. Everything else fits within these two. Love God and love others. And it all begins with loving Jesus. So the worship team comes back up. We're going to switch to a time of worship. But before we do, I want to encourage you, live a life centered around Jesus. Don't try and grab him and shove him into the complex system that you've already created or that somebody else created for you. Let him be the central building block, the central ingredient in your dinner, the thing that everything else is based upon. Let him change you. Are you willing to let him do that this morning? Let's stand and we're going to pray. And I want to pray this morning before we worship for, for us to do two things, to love God first so that everything else lines up, and two, for us just to have space to repent because all of us have probably done this. We've all created complex systems and then tried to shove Jesus into it. So I want us to take just a second to be able to say, Jesus, help me to, to redo. Help me to reorient around you, not around something else. So let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for giving us tools to be able to live life well. Thank you you didn't leave us on your own to just try and figure it out, but you gave us what we needed. And I just pray right now for those of us here who have created complex systems and then tried to shove you into the center of them later on, tried to add you as just a secret ingredient, how do we just say that we're sorry for doing that? That's opposite. And we want to do things the correct way. So we give you permission. If you're willing, just pray this in your heart. Jesus, I give you permission to reorient me around you. Not around a political ideal, not around a moralistic idea, as good as they could be in certain ways, but around you and you alone, Jesus. That's where the center needs to be, and I acknowledge that this morning. And right now, if there's any of us here who have never invited Jesus to come and be the center, I just want to encourage you to just do that because if you don't do the first, the other nine, they're just not there. So just pray in your heart and say, Jesus, I ask for you to show me what it means to love you and you alone. My wheel keeps falling off. My tent keeps flooding. I know that I can't do this on my own. I've tried, so I ask for you to come and to show me how to love you first in everything. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come, speak to us this morning in this worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.